0: All right, that's enough showing love to one another. We've had enough. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bobby, and uh, normally I get to do music here, but uh, today I get to uh, teach a little. And I hope that you have been blessed by this series that we've been in. We've been talking about grace, and, and I know for me personally, as well as for our team, it's, it's inspired conversation that's forced us to look at our faith a little bit differently, to go a little bit deeper with some of the conversations around grace, to, uh, to realize how much we abuse that term and associate it with other words. You know, associate grace with forgiveness or grace with politeness or grace with tolerance. And how it really is a much uh, greater reality, because I don't even want to say concept or idea, it is a reality that we will never fully get our arms around. Not as long as we're on this side of heaven and yet it's something that we can spend the rest of our life continuing to uncover and learn how to receive and live and express this thing called grace. So uh, when we first started, Troy just gave this definition of grace being the unmerited favor of God. We talked about grace, how do we receive grace, and then if you remember, Tricia talked about the conduit, uh, you know, being able to receive grace, and if we just stuff that in, that's not the way the conduit's supposed to work. And then last week, Troy, said, do you sometimes forget? And we looked at those vivid pictures of a well digger, of a whitewasher, of a city builder, uh, a fire lighter, and how we can distort our reality, we can distort these things uh, to remove God out of our current circumstance and try to take, uh, take hold and take charge without him. And, uh, and yet he continues to offer us grace in the midst of that. So I'm going to try to springboard off of all of those previous conversations, and, and launch into something that I think is pretty relevant to all of us. Now, for those of you that know me, uh, you already know this, for those of you that may not know me all that well, I, I'm really not the guy that's going to give you, like, sugar-coated spiritual answers. I, those, it, it's, yeah, I, it, it kind of bothers me, because I don't believe that life and faith is that easy. Just to say, read more, pray more, do these things, and your life will be fine. Uh, I, I truly believe that uh, we need to be honest with one another. We need to be honest with our current circumstances. We need to be honest with our brokenness and our flaws in order to really even get anywhere in a conversation about faith. So I guess I'm just saying all of that to you is that I'm kind of admitting to you and giving you a promise uh, to, to go about this whole thing without pretense, Okay. I'm not going to assume that either any one of your situations is harder or worse than anybody else's. We're in this together. So let's talk honestly about it. When you meet somebody for the first time, we just did a little greeting, and if I didn't cut you guys short and you were kind of forced to continue in conversation, your conversation would have gone, hi there, my name's Bobby, and you are blah, 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 and exchanged a few pleasantries. And without fail, where does the conversation usually go? So what do you do? Oh, I work here and I do this, and oh, well, what do you do? Naturally, that's one of the number one things that we go, uh, where we go in conversation. And so what I'm going to try, uh, and admittedly try to tackle today, is grace at work. Here's an interesting stat. Over 30% of your life is spent at work. That's a pretty big number. And so for some of you, you're going, oh my goodness, There's so much of my life is spent behind a desk or whatever it might be that you, you do. And for some of you, you might be saying, that's it? What are we doing with our life? Either way, either way you look at it, it's worth talking about. It's worth saying, this is, this is something that takes up this huge chunk of our life. And so we should probably talk about it in terms of faith and relationship, and specifically today, how do we express grace at work? Another 30% of your life is spent sleeping, but we're not going (laughs) to... Not a whole lot we can talk about there. I mean, grace in our dreams, I guess. I don't know. So here's a staggering statistic. 70% of American workers are, quote, unquote, not engaged or actively disengaged. That's based off of a Gallup study that just came out in, uh, t- for 2013. 70% are unengaged in their work. So that means here we have something that is occupying 30% of our entire existence, and basically what we're saying is we don't care. We don't care enough about it because it's, eh, eh, whatever. The circumstances of whatever the workplace is has led us to this place of saying, like, eh, I'm checked out. I'd rather be doing something better. I'd rather be doing something more worthwhile. I'd rather be doing anything else but actually work. That's a problem. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, if that's, you know, you think about how that is then impacting, and the study goes on to say that only 20%, 22% of those 30% that are working, are engaged and thriving. So somebody might be really engaged, but they don't like it. (laughs) And so, uh, and the, the study went on to say too about the billions of dollars that are lost in our marketplace because of being basically checked out. And so how do we talk about grace at work? Let me start with just a simple Let's have a little bit of confession. There's not, this isn't right or wrong. This isn't meant to be, uh, you know, we're not gathering data and going to call you. But how many of you would say that you feel fulfilled in your job? Good. Now, in just as much honesty, how, much would you, how many of you would say that you are not fulfilled in your job? All right. A little less of you, oh, you guys are a little more balanced on the fulfilled side. Good for you. So what is that? What is that, that fulfillment? What does that even mean, to be fulfilled? Well, we see in, uh, uh, well, first, let me have you guys open, open your Bibles. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Colossians, and this is going to be kind of where we're going to spring from. If you need one, you can go to any of the little, you know, we have some carts over there that have Bibles. You can take those and keep those. Colossians 3 22 through 25 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, I'm sure many of you have heard this part of the verse before. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. How many of you have heard that? phrase before. How many of you have probably used that phrase in, in workplace before? Now, you don't have to raise your hand for this, but how many of you have used that to justify uh, your evacuation theology? The way we read that verse oftentimes is whatever we do, we're going to do it with all of our heart despite our job. I'm going to do it because I'm called to, and I'm just going to grit through it. And But man... This thing, this is terrible. I think a lot of times we justify this. Remember Troy talking about this evacuation theology? To say we work so hard to say, oh, I just want to get out of here. I can't wait to be in heaven. And yet, and and some of that is okay and right because in, in Ecclesiastes we see Solomon talks about this. He says, you've put eternity on the hearts of man. And yet his conclusion is it's meaningless. So we've have this sense of longing for purpose. We have this sense of longing for significance, for, uh, for a sense of what we do matters. And that's a good thing. But I believe that it is something that God has put on our heart that only he can fill. And we continue to scurry about trying to fill it with things like our job or our relationships or our accounts or whatever it might be. And we're left wanting more. So then we quit, and we go say, "Well, I guess I better go find something else that's more meaningful." I can't tell you how many times I've heard some argument to say, "Like, oh, man, Bobby, my my workplace is the language these guys use, and the pictures that they pass around to each other, and uh, it's it's brutal." I would I would give anything to be out of that situation and to be able to like really be able to just be in a in a organization that that. Uh, really embraces faith and allows you to use your gifts. And, and all of that's good thinking. And yet, I just don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's right. Because the reality is, even when you're in a faith based organization as your job, you're not always fulfilled. Did I just say that out loud? It's true. There's there's times that, I I, in in my past and times now where you just kind of go like oh man, I gotta get away from all these Christians. (laughs) I gotta get I gotta get in the world and like have some like have a reality check here, or whatever it might be, and to kind of give a little bit of a of a uh, little vulnerable picture here, let me let me tell you just a quick story here. Uh, Pastor Bobby. there was was several of us that were out to dinner uh, a couple weeks ago, and and this came up, this Pastor Bobby, and I just gotta, uh, I I know this is my own junk, and so you can judge me however you want, but when somebody approaches me, like I I will help out at my son's school, he goes to a Christian school, and I'm so thankful they do an amazing job, and I'll come and do like the fourth grade chapel or help out in other things, and, and without fail, Pastor Bobby's going to be coming and doing the chapel today. Pastor Bobby's helping out with this and, and whatever. And Every time somebody calls me Pastor Bobby, I kind of throw open my mouth a little bit. <laughs> and I know that that's probably bad and wrong. But I do. Because to me, and again, I'm just confessing some of my own baggage. This is my own filter and some of my own junk. When I hear somebody address me as Pastor Bobby, I immediately think, there's all kinds of spiritual responsibility that's being put on me. There's all kind of this moral expectation that's being dumped on me. There's all kinds of this, like, educational expertise that's being expected of me. To know the right answers biblically, to be the one that is morally right, that can give advice on how to, uh, you know, go about things morally, whatever. All that stuff. And I just kind of go, Because ah, ah. my filter, like, immediately goes up and I go, oh, man, I better, I better watch my language. Uh. I better make sure that I'm like, you know, I've got some good Bible verses ready to like, there you go. <laughs> Bible, bam. And I, and I just start to go, ugh. ugh, No, thank you. No, not at all. And yet, at the same time, I am really proud to be on the pastoral staff of this church that is united in our effort in trying to pastor people towards faith. I'm proud of that. And I wouldn't want to change that. And so what is it that's going on in me, you know, that that creates this huge disconnect? We probably don't have time to go into all of that. But I think that some of that is, is because it is role versus title. Imagine if all of you put your occupation in front of your name when you introduced yourself to somebody. You know? Landscape Technician Bill, how you doing? (laughs) Nice to meet you. You know, Bank Teller Sally, how you doing? You know, it it kind of sounds a little bit silly, and so I think that's why it sounds kind of weird, because it's like, as a pastor at this church, as one of the pastors at this church, it is a role that I play that's working towards something. When I immediately now start to associate that as a, a title or even my identity is where I feel like it starts to get weird. And again, this is just for me, because uh, I mean, I, I know that there's nothing wrong with, you know, calling me that, and I'm I'm sure this is probably going to blow up in my face, and people are going to be coming up to me all the time, going, Pastor Bobby, hey, how you doing? <laughs> so let's take a little bit of a deeper look at this, and so I kind of I, I want to just to set the stage with that to say, all of you, you know, our kids are are in the services this week because of you know the holiday weekend and all that, and so kids. I'm going to break this to you really harshly right now. You are going to have to get a job. <laughs> little, little tear forming in parents' eyes. Yes, it's true. Sooner than later, please. You're going to have to get a job. It's a reality of our, of our society. It's a reality of our life. And so again, it's an important piece of our faith and because it occupies so much time of what we're doing. In Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a really interesting read, and we are actually going to be studying Ecclesiastes this summer, which I'm really excited about. Because Solomon, here's a guy that uh, was labeled the wisest man that has ever lived. He's also the wealthiest man that has ever lived. So he literally has everything, an unlimited bank account, power beyond power, Anything he say would go. He was a king in a kingdom. He was the monarch of a monarchy. He was the top dog. He was CEO, CFO, COO, you name it. He was the guy. He uh, had thousands of concubines, which is basically women at his disposal for companionship, for pleasure, whatever. So you would think that this guy would be like, man, I have found the most fulfilling earthly existence you could possibly ever imagine. And when you look at Proverbs, because he also wrote Proverbs, Proverbs versus Ecclesiastes, Proverbs was when he was a, a younger leader, when he was more youthful in his approach. And Proverbs is awesome because it's cause and effect. Do this, and this will happen. Don't do that, and you won't have this happen to you. Believe this, or else this will happen. I mean, it's just, it's very cause and effect. And he's like, man, get on it. Do this. Don't do that. Live right. You know, all of that. Fast forward to Ecclesiastes. He's getting, he's, you know, he's older. He's had a long time to kind of sit with this responsibility of wealth and leadership and power and influence and you would think that this would be the guy that wrote the book to success. And it's in the Bible, so it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so you know that it's good. <laughs> and, you, you know, so you, we read this kind of expecting, okay, I want to see, where's the five steps to live in a, a, a wealthy, healthy life that honors God? I, w- I want how to know how to be that guy. And yet the entire book of Ecclesiastes is filled with words like vanity, meaningless useless, uh, you know, you name it. It's, it's, it's a pretty stark picture of, like, we don't have much time. It's not worth it. It's like, oh, man, what a downer. Way to be a buzzkill. Where's the, where's the hope? This guy knew the Scriptures. He knew the reality of what was coming. This is Old Testament, so Christ hadn't come yet, but he knew the prophecies of the Messiah. He knew that we were going to win So it was like, where is the hope of heaven? And that's a great question that I think that we all wrestle with today, that we still wrestle with. And we know the answer. We know that Jesus comes. We know that he defeats death and invites us to join him in that victory over death and that we're going to be united with him forever in eternity in heaven with him. And yet we still go, what is life all about? what really happens when we die? We still wrestle with those same questions. So let's look at at this passage here. This is uh, taken from the message. I love the message version because it just kind of makes some of the difficult language a little bit more easy to to understand. So Ecclesiastes 18 through 20 says, after looking at the way things are on this earth, here's what I've decided is the best way to live. Take care of yourself. Have a good time. Make the most whatever job you have for as long as God gives you life. That's about it. That's the human lot. That's what we got this side of heaven. Yes, we should make the most of what God gives, both the bounty and the capacity to enjoy it, accepting what is given and delighting in the work. It's God's gift. I don't know how many of you would say right now, especially for those of you that raised your hand and said you weren't fulfilled in your job, would say that your job is God's gift. God deals out joy in the present, the now. It's useless to brood over how long we might live. How many of us get sucked up into the one day? One day I'll get to really do what I'm meant to do. One day I'll really get to exercise the fullness of my faith, the fullness of this calling that I feel like God has in my life. One day I'll get to do that. When here he's saying like, why are you thinking like that? You have a gift that's been given to you right now. You are fully capable of living in and exercising in that gift. And yet, we, and he says, it's useless to brood over what might happen one day because you don't know. But you do have this gift in front of you right now. Basically, the, the answer to this problem is Jesus. Jesus. I think we could probably make a pretty significant case to say the level of our fulfillment in our workplace has a lot to do with the scope and measure in which we view the reality of Christ in our own heart and in our own life. We've talked a lot about, leading up to this week, we've talked a lot about what does it mean to receive grace, to live in grace, to see it happening. I hope and my prayer is that this is an opportunity for us to start to say, how is it in a very real way that we start to express grace? How do we see this faith that we have in Jesus be expressed and lived out in our workplace? Now, I believe that many of us, and I I know I've been guilty of this as well, we've change the definition of grace especially when we think about our workplace we assume grace means evangelism that if we're going to be expressing grace in our workplace that means we need to be a bolder christian at work and that we need to be the ones that initiate you know a bible study Uh, we got to make sure that we're we're praying over our sandwich in the lunchroom, so that we can be this bold witness in the workplace. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. I think that that's great. I just don't think that that's necessarily what we're talking about when we say grace at work. Because here's the here's the harsh reality. I told you I'm not going to sugarcoat stuff. You can be a really good evangelist at work and be a horrible employee. And I don't think that you're doing a very good job as an evangelist if you're a horrible employee because getting fired from your job because you were proclaiming the gospel, I don't think that that's some that's, If we're saying this is a gift that God's given us, even in difficult circumstances right now, just trying to like lean heavier into evangelism, I don't think that's, that's the answer. I think we should be the best employees that company has ever seen. Where we're getting promotions, not because we're asking for it, because we're trying to prove something, but because we are being diligent with the gift that we've been given. So I think to try to paint this picture a little bit, because I know I do not know all of your work situations. The levels of stress and hours that are represented in this room, I am not about to try to say that there's some blanket statement that's going to magically make this work for everybody. There's not. But I think that we can hopefully learn some things that we can all start to apply. Uh, So let's look at... Let's look at Paul, the, the work ethic of Paul. Paul is a, is a difficult guy. He's an intense guy. He's a, he's a passionate believer. He was a, he was a passionate and intense non-believer too. He was persecuting Christians, and yet he was able to, because of grace, because of his heart being transformed, he was able to take that intensity and, and use it for, for God's glory. Um, if you want to follow along, we're going to look at another little chunk of Scripture here in Philippians. Philippians 1, 12 through 26. It says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So right there, what has happened to him? He's in jail. He's in chains. I don't know about you. If I was thrown in jail for any reason, any sense of calling that I'd have in my life, I'd be like, ugh. It's over. I'm in, What am I supposed to do? I'm in jail. I can't do anything. His attitude is, hey, this is good. This, this, this is going to help advance the gospel. This is good stuff. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Isn't that good news? And because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. This is awesome. Yes, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, specifically to him. They were envious and, rival, and, and in rivalry with Paul, thinking like, who's this guy thinking he could just go around starting churches and talking all this stuff? I could do that. So he had all these kind of like people that were trying to like, almost like to spite him, saying like, well, I'll, I'm going to do that too but others out of goodwill the latter do so out of love knowing that i am put here for the defense of the gospel the former preach christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while i'm in chains but what does it matter the important thing is that in every way whether from false motives or true christ is preached and because of this i rejoice so paul's basically saying like i'm locked up i can't do anything but this is awesome because people are going to start talking about jesus more because i got i got locked up because of because of christ And I know there's a bunch of other people that are trying to throw me under the bus and telling me that I'm doing it all wrong and they can think they they can do it better. But who cares? They're preaching Christ. So that's awesome. They can throw me under the bus all day long. I don't mind. As long as they're preaching Christ, that's great. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I know that the ending to my story is a good one. Whether I die or whether I get set free, I have been delivered. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And many of you have heard this line before. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. As long as I'm alive, I'm working So, like I said, he's an intense dude. There's, a, I was given an article when I was preparing for this, and, and this this writer says, in in response to this passage, he says, we see Paul's gospel fixation echoed throughout his letter to the Philippians. He is the man who, when threatened, says, "Well, to die is gain." In response, his captors will say, "Well, we'll we'll torture you then," and he says. I don't count the present suffering as worthy to even compare to the future glory. You can't win with a guy like this. If you want to kill him, he's cool with that because it means he gets to be with Jesus. If you want to make him suffer, he's cool with that, so as long as it makes him like Jesus. If you want to let him live, he's fine with that too, because to him, to live is Christ. Paul is, as Richard Sibbs says of everyone united with Christ, a man who can never be conquered. Yeah. I want to live like that. You know, that has that perspective and a fixation on Christ that says, like, my circumstance, the stress of my job, the stress of what's being done to me, told about me, whatever, is not going to define the reality and the hope that I have because that's been that's made secure in Christ. Now you can see the level that he believes that and has adopted that as true made him do radical things, radical things. That, and I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I know that many of you have stressful jobs, but as far as I, I, I know of American workplace, torture isn't in the workplace a whole lot these days. Now, I, I don't mean that to like mock, because uh, I know that there's still, there's plenty of slavery that is still happening in our world. There's sex slaves, there's people being tortured, I'm not trying to lighten that load, but to what we're talking about specifically in terms of you, in your context, in your workplace right now, many of you I'm assuming are not being tortured. I know if I I were being tortured here, that'd be weird. Uh, I wouldn't have the stomach to say, hey, I get to join in the suffering of Christ. This is awesome. I'd be saying, get me out of here. I can't do this. And so to have Paul have this, like, this unshakable fixation on the reality and the person of Christ allowed him to be an expression of grace in whatever circumstance he was in. Whatever area he was in. And he was not going to be uh, torn from that, even if it took his life, because he knew that, like, hey, I'm going to get to be with Jesus. So, yes, by all means, heal me. So what do we do with that in our everyday life? Because again, the last thing I want to do is make this sound trite or make this sound easy or make it sound like you just got to like believe a little bit more and receive a little grace and your circumstance will be better. It may not. I don't know. But I will just challenge you to just start to do some soul searching to say, how are you... You know, are you allowing your job or your circumstance to be the thing that defines your worth and your identity? Are you subconsciously putting your job title in front of your name so that it's defining who you are? I know I've, I've wrestled with this, and I still wrestle with this. Uh, I've been writing this blog um, uh, that we put on the website here. I call it Monday Musings, because that's basically what it is. It's kind of just like, I just start writing, whatever happens, happens. Um, and uh, before I started putting it on the website, I used to just send it to our worship team because I wanted to connect with them. And so uh, I, I s- s- sent them this kind of confession letter, and, and I thought to try to make this conversation a little bit real and more specific to me and what I've gone through in the past, I thought I would just share this with you. So I hope you don't mind me reading it's like basically like a diary entry it's called confessions of a jaded cynical skeptical worship leader i have a uh, friend that is a worship leader at a large church in a small town he confesses that sometimes he just doesn't feel the passion vibrancy and emotion that he used to when it comes to the music he is singing in his church When he was younger, he couldn't get through a set of worship music without being brought to tears and barely able to finish singing. Was there something wrong? Is he doing something wrong? Is he too mechanical and not spirit-led enough? Is that even the right line of questioning or even the right measure? I've been doing this a long time now. The very first time I led any kind of musical expression of worship was somewhere around 1995, closing in on 20 years. That kind of freaks me out. I'm getting old. I could barely play guitar when I first started. I didn't have any experience other than being a participant in church services and occasionally playing guitar in the band, even though I knew about four chords. I led a morning small group of high school students at a summer camp, six or seven people sitting in a circle, and me trying to play the one or two songs that I kind of knew from memory and then just repeat the chorus ad nauseum. I was scared, nervous, a little paranoid, and self-conscious. To my surprise, they sang along. They engaged. It was exhilarating. I found both pleasure and success in the experience. I wanted more. I continued to practice my guitar and my confidence grew. The experiences became more and more overwhelming as the stage got bigger and bigger that I was being asked to lead from. There were a few things that I can reflect back on and put some puzzle pieces together as to what was going on in my heart and soul at that time. As I was participating in services and leading music more and more, I always got to an emotional place of brokenness, being brought to tears. Subconsciously, I began to make this a measure of success for me and for those around me. If the people I was leading didn't feel something similar, then I was doing something wrong or not authentically. The emotional climax became synonymous with God's presence. Er, er, Danger. Not a good formula. My spiritual growth and development became dependent on whether or not I was moved emotionally. Don't get me wrong. I think all we need to do is meditate on the reality that God loves us despite the stupid stuff that we say, do, think, and act out every day and be overwhelmed with emotion. But what I began to do was heap shame on myself and others by expecting a specific kind of feeling to validate whether or not God loved me. And if I didn't achieve that specific emotion, then that meant that God was far from me and I must be in sin. Again, all of this was on a subconscious level. And it's not until now, at 38, and a lot of counseling, that I'm trying to unravel all those patterns and speak truth into them. Now, you may have noticed that I've worked hard over the past almost five years now To preach a model of singing worship songs that dethrones the emotional mountaintop experience that music can so often evoke, maybe even to a fault. Music is beautiful and can inspire and compel us to feel things and think things, but it is a tool, much like a paintbrush is. A piece of painted artwork may make me think things, feel things, even challenge the way I see the world, But it sounds silly if I were to say that I go around town finding artwork so that I can make sure that I'm connected to God. And if I don't feel something when I look at the artwork, then I must be distant from it. Twenty years into this job or calling, I am a better guitar player and singer than I ever have been in my life. And that's not to brag, but simply to point out that if I had stayed in my old logic of thinking... I should be drawn to more emotional mountaintop experiences because I possess more skill to create the art. But the truth is, I don't. Ouch. If I use my old logic as the filter, then I should be considered jaded, cynical, and skeptical. But I do have more confidence in God, and therefore, myself. After nearly 20 years of playing music, most of it at the church, I am finally finding some comfort and solace in the reality that God is crazy about me. He loves me because He made me, not because I have played a note for Him. And much like watching a kid play soccer for the first time, I feel like God is saying to me, I love you, kid. I see how hard you've been trying. And you've gotten better, but I just love your heart. If you want to keep on playing music for yourself or others, that's great. I'll cheer you on and give you what you need, but I'm not expecting that from you. I don't need that from you. I just love being with you, and I always will. There may come a day that you won't be able to play music anymore, and that'll be okay. I'll still be here cheering you on, telling you how much I love you. That's my mountaintop. Gosh, I thought I'd be able to get it through at this time. (laughs) Even as I was writing it back in March several months ago, I was welling up with tears because it's still so hard to receive that kind of love from God. Music has occupied a lot of real estate in my soul, and I know that that is not an accident, and I am thrilled to keep getting better to keep striving for musical achievements because I know that that is not the measure of how much God loves me. Anything I do on this side of heaven is like a toddler in a sandbox in light of God's inexplicable magnitude and awesomeness. I hope that this gives you some insight into me but also some permission to be childlike in front of God. Our musical expression at our church is awesome, unlike much out there. And I am honored and thrilled to get to do what I do. But let's not let that define our relationship with God. Deal? Deal. So I still struggle with that today. So what's your ocean? I know that seems completely out of left field because it is. I want to read to you, and I know I'm going over, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I want to read to you the passage that we started with, the Colossians passage. And I want to read to you from the message. I didn't put a slide together because it really, my wife showed me this version in between services, and I was like, oh, that's perfect. The Colossians passage that we started with in the message says this, servants, do what you're told by your earthly masters, and don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God, confident that you'll get paid in full when when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. The power of grace is that he's going to offer it to us whether we do anything with it or not but the more that we uncover how much grace is being offered to us that's what gives us the freedom to be able to step into it with confidence so what's your ocean there's a line in a song that we're going to sing that we sing here often from that song called how he loves and the line just says if his grace is an ocean then we're all sinking I think sometimes we view life like this, where we are out at sea, drowning in life, and that God's grace, in God's great grace, he has offered us a life raft to cling to, to get through. When the reality is, the more that we have that fixation on Christ, like Paul did, that we begin to see that the ocean is his grace And this little life raft that we're clinging to is our life. He's calling us to let go, to sink into the ocean of his grace, to say that little life raft of your life, of your job, the significance you're trying to find is not going to fulfill you. Let go. Let me be the one that provides that for you so that your work and your relationships can be filled from that and driven by that reality. So change your perspective. You are swimming in a sea of his grace. So as we go to communion, I would encourage you to think about where are you at and how you view Christ? How big is your view of him? There's not an easy answer that I can give you that's going to fix your job or fix your circumstance. But I do know that whatever your circumstance is, that Christ is offering you a full amount of grace that we haven't even begun to realize yet. So much so that it can change your perspective on your current reality so that you can live in confidence, that you can do a good job even in the midst of a hard situation because your joy does not come from your job. Your joy comes from Christ. So let's remember that as we go to the table. God, thanks for the freedom that we have because of those that have fought for our country to be able to assemble here. Thank you for this weekend where we remember that. And Lord, we know that, uh, that you have provided so much for us. And God, I just pray that our perspective will change and shape as we uh, uh, learn to see and embrace and receive the ocean of grace that you offer to us, that we would just be able to let go and sink so that our confidence will be in you and that we are not clinging to this little shred of life that we think we can control. So God, change our heart, change our mindset, Give us opportunity and good gifts at work to be able to express grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.